This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, May 16th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The Gina Haspel nomination to head the CIA and her recent hearing before the Senate leaves many questions unanswered, including the effective roles of both the White House Office of Legal Counsel and lawyers for the CIA in approving torture programs. Patrick Eddington, a policy analyst in Homeland Security and Civil Liberties at the Cato Institute, details what the debate over Haspel's nomination leaves out. There is still, it seems, some confusion about Gina Haspel's role within the now-shuttered extraordinary rendition uh, programs that the U.S. federal government undertook for a time uh, shortly after uh, 9-11. What do we know about that now? What we know, I think, with a high degree of confidence at this point is that for a roughly six-week period in late 2002, Ms. Haspel was tasked with a cleanup and shutdown operation at the so-called black site uh, where um, Mr. Nashiri, uh, of course, in Abu Zubaydah, had been held, uh, the two two alleged al-Qaeda operatives. And... Uh, in that capacity, she was responsible, I think, for trying to make sure that that site actually was closed down and anybody still there shipped off to one of the other black sites uh, in another country. Uh, this black site, Green, has generally been referred to as being in Thailand. Uh, I don't have direct knowledge of that, and it's not been publicly uh, disclosed at this point by my former employer, the Central Intelligence Agency, but I think all the reporting basically says this. So. She was there when Mr. Nashiri was waterboarded at least three times, uh, and perhaps some other things have happened. The biggest problem we have, of course, in all of this is that we don't have the full torture report out in in the public domain, this actual 6,500-page document. And what we do have in the public domain that the Senate Intelligence Committee published uh, three and a half years ago is is the summary, 525 pages, biggest summary of of a major report I've ever seen. But it it doesn't give us the level of granularity that I think a lot of senators like Mr. Wyden of Oregon and Mr. Heinrich of of New Mexico have kind of got. So in the course of the hearing, you know, I've called it a draw. I don't think that she made a critical mistake necessarily of the kind that automatically guarantees that she doesn't get confirmed. But she didn't do nearly enough to really help herself to put her over the top either. I mean, she was pressed repeatedly by a number of senators on this whole issue of, do you believe torture is immoral? Well, of course, if she said yes, then that immediately says, well, if you knew it was immoral, why did you do it? Why did you engage in it? And and she also basically has to cover for her colleagues, both the ones who are are gone, like Jose Rodriguez, her boss, former boss, and some of those who might still remain. So clearly she was not in a position and didn't feel inclined to go there. What she did say definitively, as far as I'm concerned, is that she would refuse an order to restart the program. Now... um, you only find out these things when push comes to shove, and we all know that President Trump is not a person, not a chief executive who likes people to tell him no. So if she's being serious, she would probably have to resign. The question is, would she then notify Congress, and you know, where will we go from there? So we'll, we'll see how this all plays out. And you argue uh, in a piece in National Interest that the, the Haspel nomination to begin with, the fact that we're... Uh, you know, getting into the nitty gritty of, of votes in the Senate and specific things with respect to her involvement with the torture programs that the our federal government undertook in 2001, 2002, 
Um, what is what is it that people are missing? It's easy, essentially, to focus on Gina Haspel because we know she was involved. So she serves, essentially, as a symbol of all of this. But torture did not get started in the U.S. government by, by Gina Haspel, right? She was one of the executors, uh, essentially, of the policy. This all got rolling, of course, because the president on 17 September 2001 signed what's known as a Memorandum of Notification, or MON, directing that this rendition, detention, and interrogation, or RDI program, be established and be run by the Central Intelligence Agency. So you had people at the White House, the president, the vice president, their lawyers, George Tenet, the DCI, or director of Central Intelligence at the time, and of course, folks over at the Department of Justice. And the point that I make in the national interest piece is that not looking at the role of the Department of Justice, and specifically the Office of Legal Counsel, is really kind of the mistake here because it was the opinions that were written by John Yu specifically. Secret opinions. Secret opinions um, that CIA lawyers directly requested. I mean, they knew that they were being asked to violate the law. And if you look at the torture report summary, which you can still find on, on Senator Feinstein's website if you just uh, Google for it, you see the actual extracts of their emails over to folks at DOJ, in essence, saying, hey, we think we're going to be violating uh, this section of 18 U.S. Code. Uh, is this really okay? That's what really got the ball rolling. So it was it was you and then later Jay Bybee and some other folks over there that helped to enable this at the end of the day. And there's been no real examination of this. There's been no fix to this. And I think that's the problem. It's why nobody could be prosecuted. You know, when John Durham was appointed to look into the, the tape destruction that Ms. Haspel has been implicated in, he could not prosecute folks because of that OLC opinion. You know, it provided a legal shield for folks. They, they felt like they were acting in good faith. And, you know, any federal agency even uh, where people are charged with executing some program, they are right to ask their bosses in the executive uh, – in the White House to say, you, you need to be the one making – the case for why we're not breaking the law when we do this. That is OLC's job. You know, they, they are charged with writing the opinions and issuing the guidance that governs not just what the Central Intelligence Agency does, but every, every federal agency and department. So they weren't wrong. In fact, they were right to ask OLC to weigh in on this. Where things went off the rails is when John Rizzo and other uh, lawyers at CIA's Office of General Counsel read the opinions, and went along with them. So that's why I say we can focus on Gina Haspel, but at the end of the day, it was the lawyers that ultimately enabled this to happen, both the ones at DOJ who wrote the opinions and the one at the agency that basically signed off on it. Okay, so we don't have access to the, the big reports regarding these uh, programs. As far as I know, we still don't have access to the specific legal reasoning of the U memos, do we? A lot of that was declassified uh, a few years ago, but it was all as a result of litigation and there were still portions that are redacted and so on and so forth. Okay. So we don't have the full uh, argument we, as presented. We, we really don't. And what we also don't have are all the emails and other correspondence that would have been flying back and forth between CIA and DOD and possibly the White House and all the rest of that, which really kind of gives you ultimately the flavor and the true background for what folks are really thinking. For the, so for that at that moment in time, uh, CIA comes off looking better than it might have just by virtue of the fact that they're putting the onus back 
on the White House. Yes. But as you point out, they accepted the legal reasoning and it's hard to make a judgment about personnel who are involved in those programs if you don't know what the argument was that was accepted by the agency to undertake the program to begin with. So her assertion that she would not obey an order to restart the program, it, it, it seems pretty easy to, for her to make that statement. Well, I, I think it is easy for her to make that statement because at the end of the day, you really don't know how people are going to react until they're presented with that moment and the need to actually make a decision and go forward. What I found really kind of inexcusable on her part, once we get to late 2005 and Jose Rodriguez, her boss, as the head of the director of operations, the head of the agency's actual spy element, tells her to draft this cable to send out to the field to order the destruction of these videotapes. She did not take the opportunity to go back to John Rizzo or anybody else in CIA's office general counsel and say, hey, he just told me to do this. Is that okay? <laughs> because she was already aware of the fact that Rizzo and others had said, do not under any circumstances destroy these tapes. So that's, I think, one really critical reason why her nomination may still really be in jeopardy is because she had that final opportunity to go back to the lawyers and say, I'm not so sure that we ought to be doing this. She didn't do it. Patrick Eddington is a policy analyst in Homeland Security and Civil Liberties at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.